0: Hello and welcome to Probably Science. My name's Andy Wood.
1: I'm Matt Kirshen. And I'm Jesse Case. And we we have a special guest today so we're gonna bring you an interview in a second. This is just a little a little preamble that we're recording separately so we don't have to bother her with our nonsense.
2: <laughs> we, in fact, are doing this afterwards, but we're going to stick it on there beforehand. It's going to be a little time travel. Peek behind the yeah. Curtain. I'm going to have to little... do
1: some
0: fancy audio engineering to put this in front Oh, run. Man.
1: There and you. And speaking go. of fancy audio engineering, Andy, who's our guest today?
0: Our guest today is an audio engineer turned neuroscientist who, uh, among many other accomplishments, was an engineer she... on Prince's Purple Rain. She made Purple Rain, people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she was Prince's personal recording engineer and also worked with a lot of other good people. I mean, a lot of other... Crosby, Stills, and Nash, David Byrne. I mean, just... towed the Wet Sprocket.
0: naked oh. Ladies, Giggy Ta.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: And actually, uh, you know, I got I to go revisit Gigi Ta, because I was listening to our guest on another podcast sing their praises, and I'm like, you know, I think I only knew the one novelty hit, and if she says it's worth checking out some more, I'm going to go... Have a listen. But our yeah, our guest is Susan Rogers, the author of the new book, This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You.
2: Yeah. Shall we hop into it? Let's do I it. I think
1: we should. All right. Hi, Susan. This is, uh, I don't know, if I had a penny for every guest we've had who was a legendary recording engineer <laughs> slash producer turned neuroscientist, uh, this is... Yet again, yet again, we've got someone who worked with Prince who now studies the brain.
2: I'm frankly getting, <laughs> I'm frankly getting sick of this pattern on our podcast, and I think that uh, the listeners are going to, yeah.
3: I'm a many. follower, not a leader, so <laughs> I, 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 I followed in the footsteps of everyone else. Now, Go where all they're all the, going.
2: For all the audio nerds listening really quick, I want you to know that uh, the three of us, the hosts, we've all bought Neumann U47s. Sure. And yep. we've all bought our own Neve consoles. We spent $3 million to record this podcast. So it, it might not sound like it's going to sound really good. If you don't enjoy us, it's going to sound like Abbey Road. Like it's just going to be a fantastic podcast. So don't worry about it. We really went all out. Um,
1: our, our
0: podcast is quadraphonic. I don't know if we Told you that soon. Yeah yeah ah. we, uh.
3: So you, you so, couldn't You couldn't spring For
0: 5.1 No no Well
2: No Matt's been Banned from Dolby He's not allowed Within 50 yards Of a Dolby apparatus It's a oh. long story
1: Yeah um, not, e- not even The cinemas I can't Yeah Yeah it's horrible So heel so book This is what it Sounds like uh, I I loved it I, I know I guess uh, Our other host Did as well Um you sort of, you break down from a, your f- pretty much unique point of view, you break down what goes into someone liking a song and particularly breaking it down into individual listener profiles in separate categories. It's what, how, how do you, you I, let's edit, let's edit this, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, like, what we're going to do, sure. we're just,
2: like I said, it's going to sound like Abbey Road, guys. It doesn't matter. <laughs>
1: doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, You're a producer, you know how to fix mistakes. <clears throat>
3: I can I can summarize it uh, for your listeners it's not so much categories as it is dimensions of brain processing so when you're listening to music let's let's uh, let's start with a novel record a record you've never heard before Uh, the record is playing your brain is going to automatically go looking for where the treats are and it knows the kinds of treats it wants to find so it's gonna it's gonna scour the lyrics it's going to go looking for any, you know, turns of phrase or innovation or anything that you love to hear. Maybe it's a message that you really need right now. It'll scan the lyrics. It's certainly going to scan the groove to see, does that feel right to my body? Does this feel like maybe it's not pushing too hard? It's not pulling too hard. Maybe it's just right. It's going to scan the melody and the harmony. It's going to scan timbres, just the sounds themselves. Even if you don't like the record, the the song, let's say, you might like the sound of that record and then it's got the aesthetic dimensions that might give it a treat uh, one being the performances the 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 performances um can be described according to whether or not they feel authentic to you does it sound like this singer is singing his heart out or this uh this performer is focused on this performance. And then there's the style of the record that can be described in terms of realism versus abstraction. Realism meaning it's a record that's made with real musical instruments, like they used to do back in the olden days, (laughs) whereas a more abstract record is made in the box, as we would say. It's made often with virtual instruments. You might have a preference. And then the last of the aesthetic dimensions is plain old novelty and familiarity. You might like music in a familiar form. You might like music in an innovative form. So all of these dimensions can be automatically automatically assessed when you hear a brand new record and all it takes is one all it takes is 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 for you to find one treat that makes you appreciate a certain record that can make you say it's good I like it it's good now if you find more than one treat and if those treats are powerful enough liking can be Well, it can become I I wanted to use the word superseded and I think I've got the wrong word there So I'm I'm just gonna table (laughs) table that for right now. Liking can be overcome by wanting Wanting is more powerful than liking because if you want something means you're gonna work to get it You're gonna memorize the name of that artist or the name of that record. You're gonna search online You're gonna find that record. You're gonna go out and get that record because it hit you so hard. Yeah, it's yeah. really
0: it's amazing to think about um it, it sort of made me put some of my music snobbery in check because it seems obvious to say it, but musically it's almost hard to relate to somebody who doesn't experience it in a similar way. But of course, why would the, it, like on our podcast we've talked a lot about aphantasia, which is this phenomenon of not being able to have a, mm-hmm. a mind's a mind's right. eye.
1: Which yeah. we gets to mention later in the in, in the book when you're talking about there's there's chapters on people who don't get rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. Which which is something, you you talk about tone deafness, but I didn't realize there's a rhythmic version of tone deafness as well, where someone actually, like, cannot get a rhythm.
3: Yeah, it's actually called beat deafness. (laughs) And uh, the folks who are beat deaf, they can keep time to a metronome so they could tap in time to a metronome, but a metronome doesn't give you rhythm. Metronome just gives you a pulse, and you can tap along with that if you're, most folks can anyway, who are beat deaf, but musical rhythm requires higher order circuits in order to listen to a drum pattern, let's say, and extract where you would like to pay attention and and follow. So it might be the 16th notes or the eighth notes or the quarter notes or the half notes. You're going to choose and your uh, rhythm processing circuitry is going to say, okay, all right, let's, let's hone in on that snare drum and let's anticipate that snare on every measure and that's where our groove is, that's where we're feeling it. Someone else may feel it on the, on the downbeat, they may feel, feel it on the one or the three or somebody else, maybe they have a faster resting arousal rate and they're gonna be listening for that hi hat, they want that faster level of tapping. But that's what these higher order circuits are automatically doing unless you're beat deaf. And if you're beat deaf it's a little bit like being dyslexic. Persons with dyslexia can look at words on the page, they see the individual letters, but they're not joining them in the same way that the rest of us do and so they have trouble with reading.
1: I I found out from the experiment in the book I was on the downbeat on okay. the, But uh yeah this is the, the the book hits my sweet spot in a mm. lot of different ways but uh it also took me Twice as long to read as I thought it would, because every few pages I had to go away and look at a song, which was a joy in itself. But that, that's what happens. Just a heads up, listeners, I think a lot of you will really get a kick out of this book. But just, I don't know, schedule a bit more time than you think you might want, because it's going to send you off on little journeys down YouTube. Oh. Um, I also, I also didn't... <laughs> And also journeys to look at songs, but also to look back at the dancing parrot from, was it a parrot? It was a oh, he's, was it cockatoo. Oh, it's
3: a, it's a cockatoo. Oh, he's so cute. <laughs> little Snowball. And Little Snowball was dancing his little heart out and um, his caregivers put, put his video on YouTube, I think back in like 2008 or something like that. And um, there's a great researcher whose name is Ani Patel. And his grad students came up to him with an iPad, and they said, check this out. And here's little Snowball dancing in sync to Backstreet Boys. There's another video where he's dancing to Queen. And uh, Ani Patel was just gobsmacked because Ani Patel had just finished writing a book called Music, Language, and the Brain, where he says, no non-human animal can extract a rhythm from music. And he's like, shit. because <laughs> that's, that, you know, that's what you have to do when you're a scientist. You have to heat, eat so much humble pie. So he had to revise that statement. He went out uh, to I think it's in Indiana where Snowball lives and, and they, they ran some experiments. And sure enough, Snowball, that groove speeds up. He speeds up. He stays in sync. If it slows down, he slows down. But the most exciting thing of all is when there's a breakdown just like, like we do on the dance floor. When there's a breakdown, Snowball's going to keep an internal clock, an internal metronome in his head, so that he can be on beat when that groove comes back in. That, that was quite mind-blowing wow. to the world of science.
1: So that, that was one of a bunch of revelations in the book, because I, I remember the video. I remember when it went viral all those years ago, and I remember seeing, like, oh, it's cool, it's a dancing bird. I had no idea that dancing bird led to... Uh, a sea change in the understanding of <laughs> right. the brain, and exactly the under- and neuroscience.
3: Yeah, exactly, and that's what uh, Ani Patel and his his research partner John Iverson. That's what they worked on after they after they saw Baby Snowball. They had to get back to the to the drawing board, and they did some more investigation. And it turns out that humans. And vocal learners like parrots and also um, there's a sea lion that also has this ability, pinnipeds, have the ability to listen to a musical signal, anything that's got a pulse in it and send a message to the motor cortex. The motor cortex then will send messages back to the auditory cortex and the motor cortex and the auditory cortex have these feedback loops that are allowing them to talk to each other. And the motor cortex is actually taken over here. It's telling the auditory cortex, here's when the beat's gonna come, I got this. So here's, here's when you need to be paying attention because here's when your downbeat's gonna come or here's when your upbeat is gonna come. So the, the beat that you like, I'll tell you when to look for it. we know, the, the brain, the brain's concept of time is way, way, way faster than ours is. So this happens automatically. But those feedback circuits only exist in vocal learners. Those species like humans and parrots that have learned to imitate the voices of others and use their voices to communicate. So it turns out that a chimpanzee, chimpanzee cannot keep time. Do a musical rhythm They can't do it A chimpanzee can't do What snowball does
1: mm. I mean That's incredible I mean I've always said That about them <laughs> No same Same here Terrible yeah. dancers My
3: biggest complaint yes.
1: Yeah uh, uh, So Andy I think I, I cut you off When you were talking about uh, re- Changing your uh, your snobbery
0: Oh but yeah Just seeing all the different ways That people can Can process And appreciate music And I'm looking at The, the various spectra And realizing like Oh yeah I guess I'm kind of An above the neck music guy I have I, I have a musical friend we've had in the podcast before who hates how i always want to bring it back to math he's like it's not all math i'm like it can be and that's not bad that doesn't <laughs> mean it's not also <laughs> emotional did you ever think that getting into this level of academic detail on studying music might be like that um is it eb white who has the quote about studying comedy uh it's messy and like the, oh, i'm sorry it's, it's like, like dissecting a frog. The frog. it's messy <laughs> and then in the process the frog dies Oh. Did you have any concern, sort of, of taking the joy out of it from from really getting into the weeds on the psychological aspects and the scientific uh-huh. aspects of that's it, or a, not?
3: That's a good and fair question, but uh, as scientists know, the more you investigate something, the more dazzled you are by the mysteries. <laughs> it just okay. it's it's so damn mysterious, and the more you know, the deeper into that cave you can actually see. And you realize this cave is so deep and so complex. My whole life, I'm never ever going to see everything that there is to see. In fact, collectively, all of us are never gonna know everything there is to know. We're gonna be exploring this cave as long as 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 long as there are human beings. So no, I wasn't afraid of that because it is so clear that with all the things that I was learning and that were just blowing my mind, there was still so much to know. Here is something that, here's something that just, I mean, I don't know that we'll ever answer this this question. So in the last chapter of the book, I'm comparing falling in love with a record to love at first sight, falling in love with a person. Science doesn't know how that happens. So you, you're in a room, you're there, you know, there's a lot of people there, you see someone, and how how, how does that work where all of a sudden you think, oh, yeah, now that's what I'm talking about. That's the person I want to meet. And you just know it and you start talking and you think, this person of all these people in this room, this person is really something special. No one else is thinking that. N no, nobody else is, is having that same reaction. And it happens similarly with records. Like you can hear a record for the first time. It's pretty rare, but it happens where it's love at first listen. And you play it for other people and they're like, ah, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> so why? Why does a record make you? Weak in the knees, and uh, for another person, it just uh, it, it doesn't move them at all. And speaking to the earlier point about snobbery, it doesn't mean that they don't have taste. Right, right. It just means that they're n- they're not interested in the same treats that you are, or the pattern of treats, I should say.
1: It's it's interesting, Andy, that you brought up uh, analyzing comedy because there was one point in the book. I think it was in the novelty section. I'm, I'm sure it was um, that tallied with something that a previous guest on the show Peter McGraw who co-wrote a book called the humor code where he he's a psychologist but he tried to break down what makes people laugh and how jokes work and that the book's theory is that comedy uh laughter comes from a benign violation it has to be it has to be a violation something that sort of jolts you uh but it has to have a, a benignness to it otherwise because if it's too much of a violation you find the joke unpleasant but if it's too benign you find it soft and milk toast and it has to hit that sweet spot for you that's sort of very much ta- tallied I think with something you wrote in the book about it having the the right amount of jolting you
3: yeah it is it's it's funny how uh everyone's got a slightly different sense of humor um and and likewise everyone's got a a, a unique listener profile this made me think of uh, Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies I just happened to see him in New York. I was in New York last week and we were talking and we were talking about the song one week. We had a lot of success with that back in the late nineties. And Ed had written the line. I'm the kind of guy who laughs at a funeral. He told me the story about that. It was, um, it was really awkward so it was his brother's funeral <laughs> oh, God. his oh, wow. brother yeah his brother died in a you know and i think it was a motorcycle accident ed was pretty young and i think his brother was young too he was like, his like brother was like 18 years old so a tragic 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 event and a super sad funeral and somebody I, I don't remember the details now from the story but somebody there at this funeral said or did something funny and ed started to laugh and and it worked its way into a song. You know, I'm the kind of guy who laughs at a funeral. When you use the word benign, sometimes it's not always benign. You know, sometimes it, it, laughter can be cruel, and yet it's... Or laughter can right. come at a cruel time, and yet, and yet it's still laughter.
1: Also, just as a side note, because this came up in the book, just I think almost certainly the only undergraduate degree that's been paid for from royalties from that song
3: yeah um
1: so how did you how did you find it when you started to like what what was it that actually pushed you into studying neuroscience and psychology
3: it was a calling i had a calling when i was young to um to do something for music, not perform it or write it or anything like that. But I had a calling to somehow serve music. It just felt like, yeah, this is this is the right path for me. And then when I got a little older, late 30s to be exact, I began feeling that same call, but directed toward the natural world. I, I thought, I think I would really enjoy the life of a scientist. And, um that little voice just kept getting louder and louder and louder because I'm not married, um, I don't have children, my life is entirely my own to do with whatever I see fit. No one's going to be hurt if I decide to leave one profession and start another so So I did it, and it turned out that 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 voice was a was a real voice. I still love the sciences to this day. I wasn't wrong about that. It's a true passion.
0: That's great. Well, I mean, I think our listeners and I would still love to hear about the pre-science part of your career and how you got into music and worked with some of the all-time greats, like absolute legends.
3: Yeah, I grew up in Southern California, and um, like a lot of kids, just crazy about music. There, there's so many of of those kids. You know, some of them, some kids are interested in sports or the visual arts and a social life. Those are all valid pursuits. But there are many of us who just love music like crazy. And um, those of us who love music, your parents see that and they sign you up for music lessons. But Uh, Not all kids are suited for music lessons. (laughs) I definitely wasn't. And I remember having this feeling of playing the piano, practicing and thinking to myself, this is bringing pleasure to absolutely no one. (laughs) I don't like it, no one listening likes it. This is so not musical to me. what I was crazy about was records and kids like that will go on to become um, they might become engineers or producers, they might become DJs, they might become record executives, maybe they'll become band managers Drop out of high school and go on the road, become a roadie. You just want to be where music is being made, and that was the feeling that I had. Now, what we have to do, and now I'm talking to you as if you were my students, so pardon me, <laughs> college professors. You know. Yeah. yeah no. No.
2: I, I. I. couldn't get into Berkeley, so this is. Oh, I need okay. this. <laughs> Thank you. I just uh, re-
1: realized I mean, you, Jesse was trying it at night. Um, yeah. 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 Bar, it was, yeah. It
3: Berkeley's <laughs> great, but this is something I tell the students all the time that there's this vend. Diagram of two spheres that you've got going on. One is who you are, the kind of thinker you are, and the other is what you want. Now we see it at Berkeley a lot. We see it in any arts college. There are kids who want a life in the arts and simply aren't made of the kind of thinking architecture that would allow them to be very successful. In those arts, I mean, it's it's painful and it's true, and you never want to tell a student that because they're paying you a lot of money. But not everyone is going to get what they want, and what you have to find is that in that Venn diagram of what you want and who you are, make a living where they overlap. And that I, it was something I understood instinctually. I didn't. I didn't analyze it until much later. But what I wanted was to make a contribution to music. And what I am is a technical kind of thinker, a mechanical sort of thinker. So um, I use logic and reason, not the software, but you know, <laughs> the actual thinking tools. Um, sure. Yeah, uh, uh, those words had had meaning before they were software. Anyway. That that was that was the right that was the right track for me. So I began my career as an audio technician, self-taught in electronics and audio processing and things like that. And then uh went to work for a company in Hollywood called Audio Industries Corporation. They trained me to service repair MCI consoles and tape machines. So I was a young woman into punk and disco in Hollywood and, and I was repairing consoles and tape machines. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, I got hired away after a few years by Crosby, Stills & Nash. They owned a recording studio in Hollywood, so I went to work for them. And I was working with them as their studio maintenance tech for a couple of years when I heard through the professional grapevine that my favorite artist in the world was Prince. Prince was looking for an audio tech. Someone to leave L.A., move to Minnesota, be his personal full-time tech. As soon as I heard about that gig, I knew... There is no better technician for him than me. He liked working with women. I had seen him in concert several times. I had all his records. I was a huge fan and uh, they hired me. I got that gig. I moved out to Minnesota and uh, the first record we worked on was Purple Rain. He was just coming off the 1999 tour. Uh, He had just had the green light for his Purple Rain movie. So we worked on the Purple Rain album and the movie and the tour and all that. I was with him for a good long run. After I left him, I I moved back to Los Angeles and worked as an engineer and also as a mixer and also as a record producer. That's
0: incredible. And I love that you talked about your, how your favorite show was seeing Led Zeppelin at the Forum, which is also mm-hmm. unbelievable. And then eventually getting to work with Prince at the Forum and have that dream come full circle. That's so cool.
3: Yeah, I, I you know, I my life started out, um, it, it didn't start out on a path that would lead to this, that's for sure, so I dropped out of high school, got married when I was 17. Um, fortunately for me, it turned out to be a good thing. I was married to a really bad man. And when you're married to a really bad person, you can get out guilt-free. You got nothing to feel bad about. Um, So I I did, and when I was 21, I I got out and I launched my career, and it's been going ever since, but that same bad man, when I was married to him, was jealous of my relationship with music. So I had to escape him in order to have the life I wanted to have.
0: I Mm. can't imagine how much more jealous he would have been of Prince uh, if he'd (laughs) been with you at that point in your career, but. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> well,
1: that was even, uh, there was a point, I think it was, was it a staffer at one of the studios you were working in who said he specifically preferred Springsteen to Prince because he felt like Prince was the kind of person who'd steal his girlfriend?
3: Yeah. Yeah. We were at Sunset Sound, and uh, that's a recording studio in Los Angeles, a legendary studio where, where Prince loved to work when he wasn't home. And um, Prince had already flown home, and I, I stayed behind. I had to pack up the tapes, and there was a young man from the front, front desk who was, was helping me. And he was asking questions about Prince. He'd never met Prince. And he's asking me, you know, what's he like? And I was telling him. And then I asked him, you know, wh- wh- what do you, who do you like? What kind of music do you like? And he said, Bruce Springsteen. This would have been like 84, 85. He said, Bruce Springsteen. And, and I asked, oh, yeah, why? I thought he'd tell me something about Bruce's music. And he said, well, I get the feeling that if Bruce met me, he'd like me. He'd have a beer with me. And I get the feeling that if Prince met me, he'd steal my girlfriend uh-huh. and it made, it made me feel so sad because Prince was Prince was really good about that kind of stuff he didn't go stealing people's girlfriends he he was um, he had high moral code believe it or not
1: this is like how Superman doesn't go around killing everyone even though he could <laughs>
3: exactly it's <laughs> just <laughs> just like that <laughs> were, were you guys to the aware he
1: could have everyone's girlfriend if he it's almost, it's almost too big a power <laughs> yeah
2: yeah were you guys aware when you were working on Darling Nikki that Tipper Gore would be upset? Were you thinking about this? Were you like, this is going to make Tipper Gore furious?
3: Yeah, yeah hell no. <laughs> no, I no. Yeah, you, you know how artists are. They're going to they're gonna write what they feel. They're going to do Was what that, they I, feel. I, not, they're not worry about it.
2: I don't mean to go uh, uh, way too inside baseball, but were you guys using Lindrums?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, not the Lindrum that most people record makers from an earlier generation are familiar with not the good one we were right. using the original one it was the model number was the lm1 and it actually drifted a little bit it it, it was a little oh, bit cool. less than perfect and it was that imperfection that prince loved so much he preferred that kind of beta model to to the fancier one that came later
2: well so i was i was curious about that because you, when you were talking about the uh that's that's very cool, and you're you're probably yourself the reason I so I bought an Oberheim like mm. two years ago, um, and that's why I don't have money. So I mm. blame you. Send, send love money.
3: those uh, the, the nice analog synths, yeah.
2: But I the thing that confuses me about it because I've always wondered why I love it so much because I grew up on you know um, human <laughs> human music, right? Mm. Like mm-hmm. analog, uh, you know, it could be electric, but human music. And then when I started getting into things like vocoders and things like that, sometimes I'm, I'm into things that are completely synthetic, but the treat for me, I guess you would call it like the mm-hmm. brain treat is still the human element somehow. Mm-hmm. Like, I always wonder why Daft Punk is more successful than a million other, you could say similar sounding things, but there's a, uh, there's still a vulnerability there, even though it's completely synthetic.
3: That's a really good point.
2: Mm and I don't know it's just it's always interested me like how to get a, a synthesizer is just a tool I mean as you know they used to just be in laboratories mm. you know um, before the mini or whatever And and now it's the stuff I still like is the most non-synthetic of it but I I don't know I don't know. It confuses me a lot.
3: Let me ask you a question. Um, Ogi, the co-author, he and I posed a research question a few years ago because um, we couldn't find the answer anywhere in empirical research reports. So we asked 1,695 music listeners in the U.S., what do you see in your mind's eye when you're listening to music just for fun? So what do you see? When, when you, what, what, do you, what do you visualize when you listen to your favorite records?
2: Hmm. That's a very interesting question. Hmm. Um Normally I I mean it's probably I, I probably have a very it's not like psychedelia or anything. It's probably pretty narcissistic, but I picture um how it's made. Mm-hmm. Like I very much am you know I'm such a just dabbler Like don't mm. I'm like totally full of shit You know what I mean Like I, I read tape ops sometimes mm-hmm. But I'm not You know what I mean I can't I can't go toe to toe with anyone Um, But I'm Yeah I just try to figure I analyze ah. how they get those sounds And then I Then I picture the preamps And I picture the I don't know A lot of That's it to really me cool. is Is imagining the making of it So it's not like some visual journey
3: Yeah I could, So I, w- I was going to say that That may be one reason Uh, one factor as to why you like what you like. That's a really good point about Daft Punk doing electronic music, technically speaking, but uh, they humanize it in ways that their competition hasn't done, uh, not not to the same extent. So uh, Ogi and I, we were comparing notes and um, we asked each other, what do you see in your mind's eye? And I, I, I foolishly, no scientist should make assumptions like this, but I had assumed that everyone saw what I see, which is the band performing. I see the artist performing. That's Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's the only thing I, I can see. I try to pretend that that's me singing or playing. I try to, to have that visualization, but I can't hold on to it because I don't know what it's like to do those things. So I always picture the band, and I, I'm sure that's why I became a record maker. Ogie, on the other hand, who likes electronic music doesn't want to listen to records where there are lyrics because he says if he can picture the musicians, the performers, it ruins it for him. His go-to visualization, like a lot of other people, is science fiction, fantasy worlds, um, outer space, abstract shapes and colors, things that don't actually exist or that we, things we haven't actually seen, let's say. So he listens to electronic music because it lets him have the visualization treat that his brain is craving. I don't listen to uh, electronic music because I can't get the treat I want. I want to picture who's playing this music. And if I can't do that, I'm searching for a treat that simply isn't there in that style of music.
2: Right. Right. No, Does that make uh, it?
3: Oh, go ahead, Jesse
2: no I was just saying I think that's a very valid point and I think that may be part of like because for me I'm not an electronic music guy so that's why I'm always asking myself why do I really like Daft Punk Hmm. and then it may be because they have this robot gimmick I don't know you know what I mean like I'm not in I'm not into uh, I don't like imagining just some guy sitting there at Ableton (laughs) like he's in a coffee shop or something it's like pretty boring (laughs) Uh, even though that's what's happening you know so I yeah I don't know I don't know maybe there's still that element of it uh that's come yeah because I mean I think all of us on the pod are just old like Beatles nerds or whatever so I'm the the same way of, of the performance element
3: yeah
0: funny so is it hard or when you were doing professional audio engineering work would it be harder to work with those kinds of artists who had a different goal because I, I i'm fascinated with i haven't spent time in the studio so i don't know what the collaboration is like and how you develop like a lingua franca with mm-hmm. an artist that you're recording like how do you how do you pick their brain to figure out what they want
3: and then line yourself up with that or collaborate that's a really good question so when an artist is signed to a record label even if they're not but mostly if they're signed to a label they've got a choice to make they have to choose a producer and um if, uh, I know these days in the era of singles that we're living in, they'll have a different producer for every song, but let's just focus on the era of album making. People who want to make an album, they're going to talk to a lot of different producers. You're usually going to go out to lunch or something like that, and you just share your vision. So the artist will describe, here's, here's the record we'd like to make, and the producer has to ask questions like, um, um, is the record you want to make the same thing as the record you need to make? You know, everybody needs to make money, so maybe there's things you want to do artistically, and maybe that wouldn't work out for you commercially. So you, you bat ideas back and forth, and you try to come up with a vision for the record, and what you're trying to do is figure out if this artist, if what they need is what you have. You kind of are responsible for saying... I can't do this, or I shouldn't do this, if they're describing a record that you don't do. For example, I had a meeting, I wrote about it in the book, I had a meeting with Lou Reed in the late 90s in New York, and I wanted that record so badly, oh, you know, to have your name on a Lou Reed record. But I mean, he's describing the kind of record he wants to do. It's very spontaneous, It's a, it's a hard, gnarly kind of rock record involving a lot of spontaneity in the methodology. I don't do that. Uh, It's just, (laughs) I'm not good at that at all. It's not my strength. And I had to say, I'm sorry, but I'm not the right one for you. So what you do is you you, you compare notes artistically and and in terms of your methodology. Could we work well together? Could we make music with each other? And if the answer, if you think is yes, then fingers crossed you get that gig.
1: That that bit in the book just... uh like that hurt me as well just uh, listening to that was just like oh god that must have been hard to oh, say no to that gig
3: it was the smart thing to do you know if 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 i had said yes it would have been a nightmare in the studio you don't do that with an artist a legendary artist like Lou Reed he's he's gonna get he deserves to get what it is he wants you don't want to make things more difficult for the artist you want to facilitate their vision so they need to describe to you what that vision is and uh then you have what you do in the, in the studio is um All right, you've decided in advance we're going on this cross country trip, let's say, using a metaphor. And you say, we'd rather go north than south because it's going to be too hot if we go, if we take the southerly route. Okay, we'll take the northerly route. And you're sitting there and you're you're taking turns behind the wheel. And while one of you is driving, the other one has the map. Sometimes they're driving and they're making choices, and you have to say, you know, you're headed a little too far north and there's going to be a snowstorm and this is going to be really bad. I would advise that we dip (laughs) south. And it's their record. Their name is on it. At the end of the day, you know, a producer might make 200 records where the artist might make two. That was what my mentor said to me. So you have to, it's their record, but your job is to advise them as to what you think listeners are going to respond to and what listeners might might not like that's your that's your job show them where the where the danger points are on the road i
2: would i would imagine working with artists um especially i mean earlier i know you were talking about a different venn diagram involving should people become artists or not but i imagine within artists there is the venn diagram of how they see themselves or what i guess what they think their traits are that are enjoyable what they're proud of about themselves as an artist and then what the good stuff is um i guess it's hard to explain it's
3: such I guess, an I interesting guess, thing
2: i guess what i mean is uh you take the last johnny cash record the rick rubin mm-hmm. record um the, to me the sweet stuff on that record is the fact that he sounds like a very old man he's pitchy he uh you know those are not perfect takes but they are perfect takes because mm-hmm. I think Rick knew to say, no, that's the one, that's the most mm-hmm. human, you know, that's the most human one we got. Um, and I wonder if that's difficult at times if someone is maybe such a perfectionist and be like, no, no, people like that you kind of didn't nail that scream. Right. Like that's the good take.
3: Yeah. <laughs> you know all, what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you always have to have those conversations. Um, sometimes it's just on a per performance level you know we're talking about this particular uh, vocal performance for this particular song and sometimes it's just an an overarching philosophy or concept of who you are as an artist this is one of the tough things about doing uh, a debut artist's record i worked on a record i was not the producer i was the engineer um i won't i'll I'll leave the artist nameless but this artist really thought of himself as really sexy Mm. really sexy, and he wasn't.
2: Yeah, we, we can tell the people we've worked together. It's okay. <laughs> Guys, listen.
3: <laughs> yeah, he, he sang as though he were courting or wooing or seducing a woman. And being the only woman in the room, I, I could kind of tell, yeah, this isn't going to work. Because this guy wasn't authentically, genuinely, naturally a seducer what he was is um cerebral he was really really smart 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 lyric writing had i been the producer i think i would have um talked with him about about changing his his vocal delivery style stop trying to flirt with people forget about it let <laughs> let, let let others do that you focus on what you do best you're really smart just be really smart uh, th- those are difficult conversations to have sure Sure. You tell pretty singers they're smart, you tell smart singers they're pretty. Exactly. Right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well
2: some of them get it on their I mean, I think it, it probably took Radiohead three albums before they realized like we're not you two. Like right. we're not a sexy like we're weird, we look weird, we're weird. And then they're just became then they're the best. Mm, you know? True. Once you embrace your I don't I don't know. I think about that a lot where I can tell I think there's this inherent thing that everyone has where uh, they don't have to be super into music or not, but there's this inherent thing when someone's taking in art, whether it's a movie or music or whatever, where they can call bullshit on something.
3: <laughs> yeah. Like that's they just so, can't. It's so scary and it's so true. Yeah.
2: You know, and uh, and you just kind of know when it's bullshit and some stuff slips through the cracks, of course. Um, but there's just yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that's my biggest turnoff musically, so I can't even define it as like a genre. Mm, Yeah, I just know. I just know they're full of shit sometimes. I'm like, nah.
3: Yeah. (laughs) And and, and isn't it funny? That's the producer's job is to call them on that. If you if you think that that performance isn't genuine or isn't um, isn't isn't interesting to the listener then you, your your job that's what they're paying you for is to call them on that and point that out. This is why I wanted to when I, in the book when I started talking about authenticity in the very first chapter I wanted to introduce the shags and explain why the shags are so important for music makers. The shags can't help but be anything other than authentic. It's all they got. The shags for those who don't know yeah, the,
1: I, I was going to say, can we can we can we describe because this is this was a spot of musical ignorance for me, and I hmm. I was completely unaware of this before your book.
3: Yes, well, so in the nineteen sixties, there was a family that lived in rural New Hampshire, and uh, it was the Wigan family. They didn't have a lot of money, and they lived in a poor part of town. The dad believed what his mother had said to him, and that his three daughters his three daughters were going to form a rock band, and they were going to be famous. So dad thought, well, all right, for this to happen, I need to guide the hand of Providence. So dad went out and bought some musical instruments, gave them to his three daughters, Betty, Helen, and Dorothy, uh, pulled them out of school, uh, didn't let them see boys or date or anything like that, and basically shut them up in a room and said, write songs and learn how to play them. So these young women, these teenage girls had no musical training whatsoever. But they did as they were told and they, they hashed out a dozen or so songs and dad managed to save a chunk of money and brought him down to Boston to a recording studio, got him in the studio to record their first and only album. He gets them in the studio and the recording engineers who were the first professionals to hear that music, they just locked the door and, and just cracked up. It just was this, this, this music was technically speaking ridiculously (coughs) bad really bad the girls even got death threats when when this record was played on on some stations or one station anyway so what what do we do with something like that well the records you know faded into obscurity but uh terry adams from the band nrbq discovered a shags album somewhere brought the record to to rounder the record label rounder who signed and released this record. So in the 80s, music industry professionals could, we could listen to the Shags. And when record makers listened to the Shags, what we heard was undiluted authenticity. People with no technique whatsoever. Supremely naive art. The Shags are to music what a child's finger painting is to art. It's not going to end up in an art museum, it's gonna end up on the refrigerator. Why? Because that little one is using their their their, their impulse to say to you, I wanna show you something. I wanna show you something. I wanna show you where I live, the people who take care of me. This is my dog. I wanna show you something. All you see in the finger painting is trying. That's all you see, because there's no technique there likewise with the shags there's no technique they don't even know how to tune their instruments but you hear that there's a purity and a beauty in there in that raw raw naked performance performances that these three young women give us so the shags are important for that for that quality and as we say in the recording studio we'd rather hear the wrong notes played with gusto than the right notes played timidly. If you're gonna perform, perform, say something. Get on that instrument, get on that microphone, tell us something, express yourself. That's what the shags do. Hmm. So there's no part of you that on any
0: initial listens to them was brought to laughter it was always an appreciation or can there be a mix of that in, oh, in your appreciation think, yeah. of music or?
3: there's there's a mix I mean, i'm grinning from ear to ear at where some of those tom fills land <laughs> i love that uh, the the producer that taught me so much tony berg out in los angeles he is the one who taught me about the shags and told me the story and uh, we were listening to the shags in his studio back in the late 80s and he said how is it possible for three people to be perfectly wrong together this (laughs) is one of the most amazing things because the recording engineers at that boston studio they reported the shags would be in the middle of a take and they'd stop and say to one another no no you're doing it wrong (laughs) <laughs> what is your standard of correct what are right. you hearing in your mind's ear you something.
2: <laughs> yeah it's like a study in like feral yeah it's like feral music or something it's almost like uh a- that's so interesting. Yeah.
0: Purely Gotta Check that out. Is there, are there outtakes that just sound like ELO? They're just like... Uh, right, right.
2: <laughs> right, just nailing it, yeah.
1: <laughs> Ugh, it's awful. Yeah. Just, uh, Mozart takes, like, yeah. There are so many different revelations in the book, but one of them, we we're talking about sort of all, one of them was about how people see themselves and... And how much of how much music speaks to you. And it was a bit about teenagers in an MRI that really surprised me, mm. about a teenager's self-image. And I think that kind of relates back to that in terms of what you feel is right and what you feel is correct in music.
3: Yeah, the teenage brain, that's a really scary thing. And I don't have children, as I said earlier, but man... Parents who have teenagers, wow, uh, that's a wild ride. But you teach,
1: you teach, y- or uh, young adults? I teach anyway. so young you, adults. Yeah, you get a glimpse into that. Uh
3: uh-huh. um, So that that fact came from Robert Sapolsky's wonderful book called *Behave: The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst Behavior*. I love Robert Sapolsky, but a lot of a lot of scientists do. Great, great scientist and writer. Anyway, he describes an fMRI study that brought teenagers and adults into the into the scanner one at a time and ask them as they're lying there in the scanner to think of the answer to two questions. One question, what do you think of yourself? What's your image of yourself? The second question is, what do you think other people think of you? So in the adult brain, those two areas have very little overlap when the brain lights up pondering these two questions in different areas of the brain. The scary thing was that in the teenage brain, almost perfect overlap. So for a teenager, what they think of themselves is highly likely to be what they believe others think of them. And this is one of the many reasons why we bond to music when we're teenagers. We don't know who we are. We don't know who we should be. We're, we're trying to fit in in our social world. As Robert Sapolsky writes about he said to a teenage brain, no question is more important than how you fit in in your social circle. Nothing matters more to you at that stage. So, you know, you have a bad day at school, and you come home and, and you're just you're just freaking out, you know, how am I gonna go to school tomorrow? And you put that record on. And that singer has just the right attitude for you. Or maybe just the right lyric that answers your problem, helps you understand this is who you need to be. When you go into that school tomorrow, you be this person. You take a a page out of this artist's book and you bring that to school tomorrow. Now, what happens to us when someone takes care of us when we're hurting? We bond to them. Of course we do. They took care of us when we were hurting, so we're attached to them. This is why so many of us have fondness in our hearts for the the records that we bonded to when we were teenagers. We're never going to let those records go. You might be embarrassed later on to admit you like them, but in your heart of hearts, you love that record or that artist. That was someone who took care of you.
1: And also just that that explains why teenage subcultures are intrinsically linked with the music. Mm Mm-hmm. You're a punk. You're a goth. You, you you like pop. Whatever. That's that's sort of who you are.
3: Yeah. Your clothing, your hair, your uh, colloquialisms. You know your your language, vernacular that you use. All of that it tends to be linked to your music, your music choices. And do you think that that your
0: taste forms in a permanent way in that period? Like, has your taste changed over your many decades
3: in the music business? Well, uh, it, it appears that for most people the answer is yes, but the exception are those folks who work in music. So, for those of us who don't work in music, we've got no—what do they call it? No dog in the hunt. Uh, we've got the music that we like. We decided that when we were teens and young adults, and that's our music. And off we go. That's where we—that's where we find our treats. But for those of us who make a living in music, we're motivated for financial reasons to. To seek out new music And sometimes we get rewards From seeking out new music It might be financial It might be uh, just in our our circle You know, professionally We may be rewarded for abandoning One style of music and picking up another So I'm not really typical of the average listener I was always motivated To seek out new styles Had I not been a professional music maker Maybe I wouldn't have been I really don't know I don't know
1: Hmm. But do you feel like even when you're working on music of all different styles, do you feel like you still bring your personal music profiles to it?
3: Oh, always, always, every time. So in the book, I write about a concept that record makers use. The term is sonic signature. So when you're mixing a record or engineering or producing, you're trying to match your own listener profile. You're you're making choices about the sounds and the performances and the parts that satisfy your listener profile so that you can find the treats you like. That's what makes you a different record maker than all the others. So a record that is made with you at the helm, is gonna sound different than a record made by another record maker. For better and for worse, Um. I'll tell you a story that illustrates that. So a few years ago, a colleague of mine, she's also a professional record maker, Trina Shoemaker. Trina sent me something that I had done in the early 90s. And she said, remember this? She said, I love this record. The artist was Hugh Harris and the song was Over the Valley. And um, she sent me that file and I listened to it at work and I said to my colleagues, oh, Don't you just love when that happens? When you listen to something you did 30 years ago and it still sounds good to you. And if you mixed it today, you'd make it exactly the same. And my two colleagues said, well, no, I'm never satisfied with my mixes. I can always think of ways to improve it. And privately, I'm thinking, not me. I made it sound the way i wanted it to sound and it still sounds the way i wanted to sound but then i asked some other colleagues later and they said they agreed with me that yeah yeah i made it sound the way i wanted to sound and, and years later i still like it so there are asked
2: oh go ahead no i was just saying can it can a producer become too powerful though because i feel like now like what people think of as music is just jack antonoff's brain hmm. You know, it's just the, yeah. that. You know what I mean? That sheen, that mi- that mix is like that. You hear that mix, and that's when I turn on the. If you turn on, listen to terrestrial radio, that's the mix. Right. And I know, it, I know it's temporary, but it's uh, it's just kind of. I don't. I don't know if when the signature, when the sonic signature becomes more than that. When mm. it when it changes the. Eh. It's hard for me to articulate when it it becomes its own genre or something. It's like it's bigger than it's overbearing, I I would say.
3: Let's use let's use an analogy. Can a food become so culturally dominant that it influences everything that every chef does? In other words, the most popular food on planet Earth might be Kentucky fried chicken, maybe or McDonald's hamburger, I suppose it'd be something like that. Maybe they sell more than anybody else in the world. Are they influencing every chef? I think the answer is kind of, well, sort of yes and sort of no. Um, uh, I think it's the same thing with music. There will always be, because music is similar to to food and fashion, there'll always be the classics. There'll always be the ones that the general public just loves. It doesn't mean that it's the best. Jack Antonoff is great, so he, he, he can oh, be Oh, sure, I'm not best, knocking, I'm not trying
2: yeah. to, yeah.
3: Yeah, just because something is popular, we can't, consider that, well, that's as good as it gets, or that must be the best because it's selling the most. No, Kentucky fried chicken is not the best chicken, and McDonald's doesn't make the best hamburgers. They make the most popular ones. And so you have to admit, it's good. It would have to be good. It wouldn't sell that much, but it doesn't mean that it's the best. There are still those folks working in the margins who who are doing worthy food and fashion and and music now music is funny that way because other art forms don't work like that you have to go to an art museum unless you're very wealthy you have to go to an art museum to see uh the work of fine artists um but music everyone can have
1: yeah there, there's um yeah it sort of tallies a bit with what you're talking about in the novelty chapter and sort of what where people lie on the novelty spectrum and it it surprised me that pop music actually lives right in the middle of that spectrum. Mm. Like I would have thought it would be the sort of least novel music, but actually when, once you explain it, of course it's sort of, it sits between really experimental and then traditional forms like uh, folk music or mm-hmm. reggae.
3: Yeah, I was uh, I just came back earlier this morning from a 30-mile drive in the country here. We only get one or two radio stations, so the one that came in clear was an oldies station. And I was listening to oldies music and and really really enjoying it. Um in general, I don't listen to oldies radio. I don't listen to the really familiar forms of music even when it's great. I heard uh, Wilson Pickett. I heard Janis Joplin. I heard heard some great stuff. But my appetite for 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 the treat on record is is going to be. I, I'm, I'm going to get a big treat from novelty. I appreciate and like the familiar styles of music. I like folk music. I like gospel. I like reggae. I like bebop jazz all all cool but it doesn't light me up the same way that the more innovative forms of music often do and that includes artists like king gizzard and the lizard wizard or oh yeah, yeah i like them and <laughs> uh, tennyson yeah. and uh i remember I, what happened to tame impala is he still making records uh,
1: yeah he's still around. doing pretty well he's
0: but he's getting away from guitar it's it's getting a little more like the, the he, stuff, he, yes, got he, Susan, yeah.
2: he got antonov Susan
1: he got Antonov'd that be is something that you well, in that chapter you talk about how sort of things on the more experimental end if they hit big enough they then sort of get shifted into novelty so yeah. something that was sort of the cutting edge of production then becomes the kind of the signature across all pop music for a while until the new thing comes in.
3: It's very interesting it's- learning how that happens. So let's say there's a new style that's bubbling up in the underground and if you go back 50 years, that would have been disco. So it's, it's kind of happening, you know, and you go to certain clubs in the big cities and there's a certain trend to have the hi-hat do a certain thing and with the four on the floor kick drum. So it's coming up, it's the it's late 60s, it would have been early, early 70s. All it takes is one artist have a disco hit and then all the others who were experimenting with disco are gonna say okay that's how you get a hit and it they imitate the person who had success and then it solidifies that genre this is how disco goes so it reduces innovation in in favor of uh, conformity conformity that just might earn you some money so right now out there there are countless innovators most of them Aren't going to hit, but those innovations that do manage to uh, to include just the right sprinkling of novelty on top of more familiar musical elements, those novel elements are going to be the things that other record makers say, "Yeah, we want more of that," and they'll 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 follow in that person's footsteps.
2: It's it's funny when they pick the wrong element, though, mm. because because like uh, you, know, if you think about. 67 uh, so like Sergeant Pepper just ex- you know blew up and they're, they're starting to record guitars in reverse and do all the stuff but then you have this whole wave of I think some of the worst music I've ever heard <laughs> is like the knockoff psychedelia yeah. you know like the uh, the incense and pepper men and it's just like so horrible because they just said oh these are the ingredients it's like they right. made a list this is how to make a psychedelic hit so they're like it must be mm-hmm. the sitar And it's like, no, it's kind of the sitar, but not really.
3: I was just talking about (laughs) art versus craft, and I use the word art to refer to original thought, innovation. You've thought of something that no one else has, and every art object is going to have a certain proportion of art of innovation and a certain proportion of craft. So sometimes it, when you're just a crafts person and you're trying to be an artist, you think it's just a formula. All I have to do is imitate the craft of these others and it's going to be great. It's going to be huge. It's going to be gold. It's going to be platinum. This is going to be awesome. No, it isn't. Uh, because uh, because <laughs> listeners and consumers, we're not stupid. We can hear what went into that. And sometimes there are records that are pure craft and they do okay, but they're not going to be the big award winners. I'll give you an example. So, my, my drive this morning was a, a long drive. Now, these country roads, you know, it takes a long time and listening to the old East Station, and it was all good. I was hearing a lot of things that I just loved. And then a Monkeys song came on. Remember the Monkeys? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. A monkey song came on. I had to shut the radio off. Uh, oh. It's, it's it, You know you know the song? Mary, Mary, what's your... Dun, dun, oh. Mary, Mary. It was banal. And I'm thinking, yeah. you know, the, the Wrecking Crew played on it, the, the great writers and all that, and Michael Nesmith, he's certainly very talented. These people weren't hacks, but there was not that spark of innovation on this record. It was merely craft and it was an old dated craft. And I don't want this, there's nothing for me here. When I turned the radio back on, uh, Janis Joplin was there and and that was great, that was great.
2: Sure. If I had a nickel for every time Davy Jones has ruined a drive for me, I, uh, I'm serious, guys. It's unreal. It's unreal. Um, uh, Susan, where is your book available? So we can we can get our folks over there um, and uh, get them get them on it because everyone should. Oh, read it.
3: thank you, thank you. It can be found everywhere on um, Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com and in bookstores um it's it's out there it's got a big wild cover which we love very colorful it Mm -hmm. does look
1: great and we should and also the website is great this is what it sounds like.com you've put uh you've you've put some of the experiments that you reference in the book and then there's also the record pull section which is obviously the Mm. theme that runs through the book how how record pulling defines who you are
3: yes and Uh, you can if you're interested in finding a playlist of all the songs in the book it's in there you just click on the on the icons for title or spotify or apple and and you can find uh the records we talk about I, I
1: would definitely recommend doing that and having that accompany the book. Mm. It's the it's the best way to read it. Uh, but yeah, This Is What It Sounds Like is the name of the book. It is written by Susan Rogers with Oggy. Uh, is it pronounced Oggy Ogas? Oggy.
3: Oggy Ogas. Oggy.
1: Yeah. I want to make sure I got that right. But Oggy Ogas is the co-writer. But Susan Rogers, a legendary producer, engineer, Maker of music and now neuroscientist and psychologist, and uh, go and get the book. This is what it I, sounds think, this is I think. I
2: really think probably great. science interviewee, probably the biggest credit. Sure, I'd so. Say so. something for the CV. You're welcome, Susan. Right. Um, this is
1: what it sounds like. What well, the think... music you love says about you. That's the that's the subtitle. And and yes, I think what this book says is probably science. That's the that's the credit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. has been well, so uh, much
3: fun. Thank you so, thank you so much. much for doing it. Oh, thank oh, you.
1: We've thank... loved it. Yeah,
2: we've had a blast. Thanks so much. Well, boy, that was a lot of fun, huh, fellas?
0: Yeah,
1: that yeah, was. I, I, I tried to not make too much of a fool of myself. <laughs> I think I s- slightly managed it for most of the podcast. Some of it. I love yeah, that she and, loves
0: King Gizzard and Team Impala. That's right up my alley. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, that was uh, that was cool. That was very enlightening. Um, uh, do do get the book. We'll post links uh, in the show notes and at sciencecom as we always do. That's also where you can find. Uh, links to all the stories we cover in other episodes and also our patreon and paypal links probably science at gmail.com is the email address for any questions comments clarifications and stories you'd like us to cover and you can find us online at probably science on twitter individually at andy t wood at jesse case and at Matt and uh thank you again susan because that was awesome yeah right. get the see book you. see you guys later bye-bye bye